We're back in 1 John this morning, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Um, we have, I've mentioned quite a bit, and I'm going to again this morning, but um, the way that I start this is love is love, it is said today. What does it matter who I love? Love is love. And this topic, I, I know that I've touched on it several times, but the forces of darkness are blinding people of our day to what true love is. The who cares who I love anyway. And it is the, uh, the greatest, I'm sure, uh, the greatest challenge that we face. And it's interesting that love and sexuality have become mixed to such a degree that it's thought you cannot have love without the other. And it's a very twisted view of what humanity is that we face today. And so the Christian who says that God has shown us how to order our loves, our series, Back to the Basics, we've looked at uh, seeing as joy the first week, the second week walking in the light, last week living like you believe it, and today rightly ordered love, that it's the Lord God that orders our loves. We really, we started on this last week when we uh, talked about the double love command of Jesus, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And those are rightly ordered loves. But if you hold to that today, that's considered narrow, bigoted, even dangerous. And uh, for instance, so just this February, so a few weeks ago in, out there in Arizona, one of the largest school districts out there voted to ban student teachers from Arizona Christian College. No more student teachers from there. For years they've had a contract with the college. Uh, students would go there, do their student teaching, and then many of their graduates are teachers there that's no more because of a change in the school board. There are those who took offense of the college's commitment on their purpose statement to educate through a biblical lens. Interesting. That's where we're at, though. As we saw last week, though, God has ordered our loves, like I've mentioned. And so we love God, we love our neighbor, and then all the other issues of life that we talked about last week, all of the rest of the law, hang on those two. Love God, love neighbor. And then all the rest the Lord acts, asks of us fall under those two. And we talked about uh, living like we believe it, that our conduct as we grow in Christ, lots of grace here, because in fact we don't always emulate Christ in our actions or attitudes or whatever it may be. So lots of grace, but the, the goal, the end game, is to live like Christ, to live for Christ. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John 4.10, when we want to know what love is. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Tons of theology in that text. Tons of theology in there. There's the depravity of man, not that we have loved God because in fact we can't unless he changes our hearts and minds so we can. So it's not that we love God, but that he loved us. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. And he took the initiative and so he sent him 
to save sinners to be the propitiation for sins. There's a ton of theology. The wrath of God that falls on the Son, son of God, the imputation of my son to him, uh, my sin to him, the imputation of his righteousness to me. I mean, it's amazing. In doing so, he's shown us what true love looks like and how it's to be lived out. And we talked quite a bit about that last week. It was C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. That would kind of be maybe how our modern world would perceive it. Fallen man is not an imperfect creature who needs improvement. No, he is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And as we lay down our arms and surrender, he, God, brings us into his family and calls us his children. Literally, we submit to, to God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is the only way. And so when we submit to that and come through the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which in a special way we'll remember here in the next couple of weeks, uh, when we submit to that, we enter into the family of God. We lay down our arms. And then we become strong in Him. And so today we're going to see that in this text, we become strong in Him. His Word, that is God's Word, abides within us. And we gain victory over the evil one, the enemy of our souls, because of the victory of Christ. And then that sets us up to love God. To love God more than the world. We're going to see that. Um, I'm going to use the word wor worldliness in a little while. That's a word that we don't use much anymore. But really, when we talk about worldliness, we're talking about loving the world. And we'll, we'll see that uh, when we get there. So I'm going to read this in a couple of chunks today instead of reading all the way through. Okay, so we'll read a section, we'll talk about it, and then we'll come back and read another section. So... Uh, what I'd like to do is starting in chapter 2, verse 12, I'm going to read through verse 14. We'll work on that a little bit, and then uh, after that, we'll look at 15 through 17. So starting in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. and You have overcome the evil one. It's an interesting uh, section there that uh, uh, John, like he's repeating himself, it seems like. And even the commentators said they... Uh, comment on this section. There's uh, some disagreement, if you will, or, or even like why, why the two. There's a, some observations, though. So you notice that the first three I am writings, or I am writing to you. I am writing to you, little children. I am writing to you, fathers. I am writing to you, young men. Then he changes, and uh, I'm using ESV today, so it says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. New American Standard switches to I have written. In other words, you, you can see John, he's, he's uh, whether again, whether he's dictating or writing uh, himself, probably dictating, but he's going along, I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you 
uh, fathers, I'm writing to you, young men. And it's almost like he stops and, it re- and, and reflects. It's like, uh, i got to reiterate this. I have to. I want you to understand. I have written all of this stuff, young men. I have written, young children. I have written, fathers. I'm writing all of this for you because I love you. I love you. I love God's church. I want you to hear me. And so he's exhorting us to pay attention. And he starts in verse 12 again with that term of endearment. I'm writing to you little children. Remember last week we talked about that in chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing to you these things so you, that you may not sin. Little children, you don't have to live that way. He loves his people. This is John, if you will, the senior saint who's fired up about the church and the false doctrines and other things that have entered in. And so he's fired up, but he's also very, very protective. And so he has these terms of endearment. When he says little children, he's not belittling or putting down. He's just simply saying, I love you. I love you. I'm senior in the group, and I've earned the right. (laughs) Little children. And he says to all of us, little children, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. So he's going to give us six more. I'd mentioned before that John gives us four reasons that why he wrote the book. And big picture, there are four reasons, I won't go back to them, that he gives why he's writing 1 John. The very last one that he mentions, I will give that, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Last week, one of our points is that we can know that we know. We can know that we have the eternal life through the blood of Christ. We can know for certain. And so John writes to that purpose, but then here he personalizes it. He brings it down to people, to individuals. And if you will, uh, collectively, he's writing to all of us here on this. And so he's going to give us six more reasons that he writes. And so the first one here is reason number one, because your sins are forgiven. You remember in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the ultimate right Right, uh, right here in this text in John uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, we talk a lot in our society about rights, and we're thankful for the freedom and rights we have, and praise the Lord for them. They're guarded by constitutions and laws. That right right there, the right to become a child of God, that's the living God saying, by the blood of Christ, you have the right God-given that cannot ever be taken away by the living God. You have the right to become my child. Because your sins are forgiven. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, after talking about the the despair of sin, says, such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God that you were washed. You're made clean. Because sin is dirty, that walking in the dark that we've talked about. Uh, so much about, but you're washed. You're washed in the blood of Christ. You are sanctified, literally holified. You're made holy. Not because we are, but because Jesus is. It's His righteousness. We're made holy. We're sanctified. And you were justified. That's the divine not guilty. 
because he looked at Christ and took my sin and said guilty. When he punished his son on the cross. And so the, the triune God is involved here. You're justified. That's the Father who makes that declaration in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the second person of the Trinity by the Spirit of our God. There's the Holy Spirit. The whole triune God is saying, not guilty. You're washed. You're clean. You're mine. When John says, you are, uh, your sins are forgiven, all of that's wrapped in there and much more. We, are, we have reasons why he's writing, but we also have reasons for hope. And he says, for his name's sake. I love that we sang about the name this morning. The name. Whose name? Jesus. For his name's sake. But also the Father. And so Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior or Deliverer, or God saves, or Yahweh, the God who is, for His name's sake. Why have you been saved? For for the glory of the name of the living God. For the fame of Yahweh, the God who is. Not all the gods of our little imagination who aren't. There's one God. His name is Yahweh. He was revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus. Then, in 3 John 7, after he talks about uh, the itinerant preachers and hospitality to itinerant preachers, he mentions that they have gone out for the sake of the name. It's all about the name. What's in the name? The name equals the character and attributes of God. It's why we reverence the name. It's why we don't curse in God's name. It's why you don't use the name of Christ or the name of God in vain. It's the holy Character and attributes of God. To disrespect the name is to disrespect God because it represents all He is. And who are we, little creatures of the dirt, to disrespect God? John says, little children, your sins are forgiven for the glory of the name. You got it all. For the glory of the name. But then he personalize it. And these characteristics uh, uh, that we're going to look at for the rest of these here, um, if you will, are different ways of looking at maturity in Christ, uh, maturity in our faith. So for instance, here in uh, verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He repeats those exact words in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He's using, use, using these, if you will, as metaphors. The, the fathers, uh, because you have known him from the beginning, this is, this is the mature believer who has lived with God and lived with Christ. He's seen him work. He's seen enough of life to see the good, bad, the ugly, and God is always there. He's always faithful, and he's just utterly convinced. And for him... I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, end of discussion. No more to say, to say because you know the true and living God. That which was from the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That uh, the beginning, in the beginning was the word, John 1.1. 1, 1. Or how about Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. This is the senior or the older believer. Often it's an older saint, can be a younger person who's experienced a lot of life and experienced the ups and downs of life. And through it all, there's this staid conviction that God is good. God will take care of me no matter what. 
I'm trusting him. That's the end of the story. This is a mature believer right here, the father. The father, the mother, if you will. I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. I don't have to say anymore because you know what I'm talking about. But then he goes on and he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Number three, uh, call this the strong, because you have overcome the evil one. In, uh, in chapter 4, verse uh, 4 of 1 John, it says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is the, the strength and the vigor of the, of the growing believer who's growing in the image and likeness of Christ and, and is uh, growing in his faith. And as John says, you've overcome the evil one. Not yet at the point where the fathers are. A lot of times, a lot of times the fathers and mothers are older, and, and to be honest, the strength in some of that is gone. It's the staid conviction that no matter what, I'm good. And the, the, the strong young man, he's still growing to learn and, and uh, to experience life. But the fact is, he's set on a course in growing in the image and likeness of Christ. And so you have overcome the evil one. And any rights to the children. It's interesting here, observation. This word for children here is different than he uses for the word little children. It's a different word behind there. And it literally is talking about uh, immature children, babies, Imm- I write to you, children, because you know the Father. This is the, the new believer, the inexperienced believer who's young in the faith. And there's a lot of ups and downs. And, and there's a lot of, boy, I don't know. And, and all that goes with that. But John is saying to them, but you know the Father. You've got everything you need. Yes, you have more about the Christian life to, to uh, learn. But you know the Father. Remember, I and my Father are one, Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have Christ, you have the Father. And he says, you know the Father. And again, he re- as I said in verse 14 there, he repeats himself with the fathers because there's, there's just no more to say. The fathers, all these other characteristics we look at here, that are all encapsulated in the fathers. It's interesting that he returns to the young men. He gives us two more reasons why he's writing. Um, He repeats there in verse 14 at the end, you've overcome the evil one. He's already told us that. But uh, at the beginning now, I write to you young men because you are strong. (laughs) We were talking briefly earlier today when you get a bunch of uh, young guys together. um, Wish Preston was here. He could give you stories. (laughs) But you get a room full of junior hires or even, even, even high school age boys. There is so much energy in that room just bouncing off the wall. These kids are strong. They want to burn that energy. They want, and you've got to give them work to do or something or they're going to drive you crazy and do damage. And, uh, <laughs> but this Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This image of the young man, there's this virility, there's this strength, there's this not stop. I'm plowing ahead. I remember in my younger days, um, wish I was still back there sometimes, but even in my 30s, my 20s, uh, I remember a project we did. I was working 10, 12-hour days on my feet all day. 
come home at night, load my truck with dirt. I did 14 truckloads where I shoveled it on with a shovel, shoveled it off by hand, did that uh, three loads a night during one week, and still worked my 10 to 12-hour days on my feet, slept every night, and felt great at the end of the week. It was great. Today, if I can load the wheelbarrow, I'm doing a good job today. You know? <laughs> you get my point, though, that strength of a young man. You just like, work needs to be done, I can get it done. That's what he's talking about here. And, and why? Because the Word of God abides in you. It's the young, this, we're looking at, these are pictures, so it applies to all of us. But these are word pictures. And, and, and so the word of God abides in you, and the, the source of strength in this metaphor is the word of God, and it abides in you. And you're strong, and you've overcome the evil one. You see different levels of spiritual maturity in this text here where the aged John who's wise and he's writing to his people and and essentially saying, I'm writing to all of you and I want to comfort, challenge all of you. Whether you're immature, whether you're the child in the faith or whether you're the father and mother in the faith, I'm writing to all of you. This is for you. Uh, that's why I've written this, and, and it's for us. The, uh, the children, the, the, the least mature, I want to go back there, because I do have a couple of texts with that that I want to reference. When, when it says, because you know the Father, John 14, 7, you remember Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We've referenced these verses many times, but it's so important that we remember that. With Jesus, you get the whole package. Uh, You've got the Father. You've got the Holy Spirit within you. Literally, it's the triune God that we serve uh, in the name of Christ. And and then in Galatians 4, 6, this is wonderful because you are sons, daughters. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's now the second person of the Trinity is drawing us to the Father and crying out to Father God. And we know, Romans 8, that Jesus is interceding for us. So is the Holy Spirit. He's working in us. He's prompting us. And we've got the whole package. We've got God and we cry to Him as Father. Intimately. Not in terror, but as our dear Father who loves us. And wants us to come to Him and to talk to Him and bring our requests to Him and live for Him. That's who John is writing to here. These are the reasons that he wrote this book. He loves us, all of us, no matter where we're at. Now this issue of, I used the word worldliness, it's a word we don't use often anymore. We mentioned this uh, in, uh, I think it was last week, but it runs together a little bit, but... um, it used to be that uh, this issue of worldliness uh, seemed to have more to do with activities that we participate in, and if we don't do that, then we're not being worldly. That's kind of how we, at least how we talked about it. And uh, John here, though, uh, he writes more about our heart attitude. Certainly, when our heart attitude is wrong, and our, our, our core desire is not to glorify Christ, certainly we're going to find ourselves doing things that do not glorify Christ, in fact, dishonor Him. And so activity plays into this, but really worldliness is a matter of our heart. And it often leads to ungodly activity. 
but it starts with our heart, with our attitude. So one author, this is the definition that he gave of uh, worldliness. Anything in a Christian's life that causes him or her, all of us, anything in a Christian's life that causes him or her to lose enjoyment of the Father's love or to do the Father's will, that's worldliness. That's loving the world. Anything that causes uh, me to love the, not enjoy the Father's love or to do the Father's will. And so when we think hard on that, we find out, you know, that there's actually a lot of good things that I'm involved in that I may actually start to put above the Father's love in my life and enjoy that more. That's worldliness. That's what uh, that author is saying. So here's, here's uh, uh, how this works. Uh, Genesis 3.6. We remember this story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So good for food. We're going to see this in a minute, but this is the desire or lust of the flesh. Boy, that looks good. The one item that God said don't touch or don't eat. Boy, that looks good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. And it it probably was beautiful. And then it was desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life. So we have the desire of the flesh, good for food. We have the, des- the desire of the eyes, del- the delight to the eyes. And we have the pride of life, desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit, she ate, and gave some to her husband, and he ate, and we all died. And here we are today, struggling with sin because of that. John, as we turn here now, let me read 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's an interesting little section here. We, you, you know, you could really come up with a real list of rules, right, so that we... We just know we're not loving the world. And, and let's not question the motives uh, of our parents and other generations who did things to create fences. But this love for the world, I've mentioned, that, you know, it was a year ago in February um, that I did a sermon here from John 17, and I mentioned, I'm going to re-mention uh, this point. And John, in his writings, uses that word world in three different ways. So when we read, one of the things we needed to discern is, what do you mean by world, John? Cosmos, world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Well, world, in John's writing, is the created order, the universe, the planets. That's the world. So do not love the created order or the things in the created order. Well, wait a minute. God created everything that is, and he said it's good. Yes, it's under the curse, but he said it's good. And so uh, it, is, it is good and right for us to properly love the world, love the earth. I mean, in the sense of being caretakers. He said to, to work the ground and to till it, and, and we we're caretakers. And so there is a proper use of resources and all the rest. So the point being, there is a proper love that we have 
for the world. So he can't mean that here. Well, another way that John uses world is mankind, men, women. All the people are the world. So do not love people or do not love, yeah, do not love the people or the things uh, of people. Does he really mean that? No. We just talked about the double love command. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so we love people. So he can't mean that. What he's talking about, the third way that John uses it, is the evil, fallen world system. Do not love the evil, fallen world system or the things in the evil, fallen world system. He's talking about the world under the curse. Don't love the world. And he goes on, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the evil, fallen world system, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love sin and the things of sin and that are under the curse. You can't love that stuff and love God. It's just, you can't. That's what John is saying there. For all that is in the world. Now here's our three desires. The desire of the flesh. Anything that appeals to our fallen nature. Anything that appeals to our fallen nature. Uh, The flesh does not refer to the body, but instead to the fallen nature of humanity. We have a sinful, fallen nature. So when he says here, uh, when he says here, for all it is in the world, is in the world, in the fallen world system, the desires of the flesh, he's talking about those things that appeal to our sinful, fallen human nature. And boy, couldn't we make a list on that one? It's endless. Uh, there, there's a multitude of ways to sin. And sadly, but truly, sin appeals to us. It appeals to our fallen nature. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person... Uh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We have this fallen nature that doesn't get it. And even as believers in Christ, we struggle with this. Because as I said, we can get out of order where even good things become bad things because our loves start to fall so much on something that we, in and of itself is okay. But we put undue emphasis there and we find ourselves loving that more and enjoying that more than we enjoy the love of the Father. In uh, Galatians, Paul wrote about this battle of two natures. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such are the works of the, of the uh, old man, of the fallen nature. And this desire of the flesh, it's where it leads. The world appeals to the flesh in all of us. And we said this already in our study, but we're, we're living in that already and not yet. I am saved in Christ, declared righteous. The Father looks. He says, not guilty because of the righteousness in Christ. The fact is, I've been declared not guilty. He sees purity, but because Christ is mediating, he stands between. So the Father looks at him and not me. Fact is, I still struggle with sin. In other words, I am being saved. I'm being made holy. I'm not there yet. 
And then I will be ultimately saved when I'm in glory with Christ and I'm like him because I'll see him as he is and I'm made perfectly holy. That's where we live and so we're tempted to fulfill our natural appetites in ungodly ways. That's what happens. That's the lust of the flesh. And so our hunger can be turned to gluttony. Our thirst can turn to drunkenness. Our weariness can turn to laziness. And our wants, legitimate wants, can turn to greed and lust. We can easily, we have a, we have a, we're good at it. Taking good things and turning them into evil. Because of the lust of the flesh. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26. Romans 7, Paul said, in our flesh is no good thing. First uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. In Philippians 3, Paul said, put no confidence in the flesh. And in Romans 13, Paul said, make no provision for the flesh. You see where the lust of the flesh is something we all battle. We all battle. And as, and as John is writing to the fathers and to the strong sons and to the children, the battle is going to be at a different place for all of them, for all of us. But nonetheless, we battle until we see him face to face. Lust of the flesh. He, he goes on, though, that lust or the desire of the flesh. So for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, pleasures that satisfy the sight and the mind. And boy, in an internet age and an online age, aren't, aren't there an abundance of pleasures for the eyes? Good things. But good things in excess. You know, one of the, the, the greatest addictions we have now is to our online media. Uh, things like TikTok and, and uh, Facebook and Twitter and others to where literally brains are rewired and, and, and people can hardly even think anymore because of excessive use of online resources. And, and this uh, desire of the eyes. So you remember Achan, son of Carmi, Israel comes up to the Jordan River. God parts the river. They walk through on dry land. It's amazing. I love that story. And then they walk around Jericho, right? And then they blow the trumpets and the walls fall. <laughs> now who says God's not in that battle, right? The river parted. They walk through on dry land. Walk around a city. That's odd. Blow a trumpet into a big city. Just crash. And then they went in and destroyed the place because God told them to do that. What he did there, he put Jericho under the ban. Under the ban. Which means uh, he, specific instructions. When you go in there, and you'll see it in many places, when you go into this city or that city, here's what you do. It's under the ban. It's under the ban of God. Uh, on occasion, he'll say the gold or whatever, that's mine, you put it in my tabernacle. Everything else, you kill, destroy, and burn. Under the ban. That's what he did with Jericho. Then this Achan, shortly after Jericho, they had another smaller battle, two, three thousand men, it's a little city. You don't have to send many troops. Don't worry about it, Joshua. We got this one. They went out there and got pounded, defeated in battle. Joshua goes before God because, remember, when Israel goes into battle, who's leading the charge? It's God. You always face your enemy because God's leading. And he says, what do we do when the enemy saw the backs of our men? And they go back. And God says there's sin in the camp. Gives them a process to find it. It comes all the way down to Achan. 
Joshua, give glory to God, son. What have you done? Joshua 7.21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw, I coveted, and I took. And the whole nation was punished and his family ultimately was killed because he saw, he coveted, he took the lust and the desires of the eyes, pleasures that satisfy the sight and the mind, and the eyes are a gateway to the mind. Turn my eyes from vanity, Psalm 119, 37. Let me not look at vanity, empty things. It includes our intellectual pursuits, things that we we consume our minds with. We even talk about the mind's eye. We can see in our minds, right? That's how we think, we visualize. And so this whole desire of the eyes, pleasures that satisfy the sight in the minds, John says all that is in the evil fallen world system, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And wasn't that Lucifer's fault? I mean, the fault within him, what led to his fall, is this whole pride of life. You know, I'm pretty beautiful. I got lots of power. I'm really something. I'm going to be like the Most High God. And God took care of him. The pride of life. There's a presumptuous that acts as if we can do or have anything we desire. You know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm pretty clever, and I'm going to learn that, and when I get done there, and we make all these boastful, prideful claims, and God says, you're nothing. You're nothing, James uh, uh, chapter 4. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes, you know. You're gone. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. But that pride of life where we get all presumptuous and then we start to think we deserve stuff. You know, I deserve this stuff. And we forget that really the only thing I deserve is judgment. That's what I deserve. Except for Christ. I deserve judgment I don't deserve this or that amusement or trinket or whatever and thank the Lord for the good things. I'm looking forward to a good dinner with the cooks today. (laughs) So thank God for that stuff, right? But do we remember that's a gift from His hand? I don't deserve it. It's His mercy. I deserve suffering, not blissed. And everything in this life, all the good, are gifts of grace from the hand of a merciful Heavenly Father and Wonderfully, in common grace, all of humanity shares in this. But this, this lust or desire of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life, look what John says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The evil, fallen world system. The things that we battle against. The flesh that we have. Our, our fallen nature that we battle against. That's where all that comes from. That's what we battle. Well, he goes on in verse 17 here. The world is passing away along with its desires. All that stuff, all those cravings, all those desires, uh, it's all passing away. But wonderfully, whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
It's doing the will of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else subsumed or, or hanging on those two branches underneath it. And we live it all out and we pre- please the living God. All centered on the gospel of Christ because first he's the one that makes us righteous. And then we abide forever. Because we're centered and living in him. John is a very concerned apostle and pastor with a passionate heart for people and he knows the challenges we face. He's a man. He experienced these, remember? He's the son of thunder, right? We talked about that. He had a temper and and all the stuff that Jesus had to work on in his life. But bottom line, he says, it's, it's living in relationship with the Lord, keeping the rest of our life, the stuff we have and our, our passions and our desires in sync with him. And then we enjoy the blessings that he gives us. We enjoy the blessings that he gives us and we thank him for it. Hard for me to believe we're at the end of our four-part series as we start to wrap this up a little bit today. I've enjoyed working on this. There's so much more uh, that can be worked on here. There's a couple things today then let's look at as, as things that we learned today. And I, and I wanted to give us uh, tools to live a victorious life. These are the six things that, these are reminders. So these are not just the lifts of do's and don'ts. But this, these are reminders as we look, your sins have been forgiven, little children. This is who we are in Christ. Not because I'm clever or I'm smart or I had a good upbringing and thank God for all the blessings like that. No, where sins are forgiven because of Christ and you know Him who is from the beginning. You know Him. You know Him through and through. He's proven Himself. You have nothing to fear because you know Him who is from the beginning and you have overcome the evil one. In Christ. Here in a couple of weeks when we celebrate the resurrection, one of the, one of the coolest things about that in my, in my mind, I don't know how it worked inside the tomb. Remember, it wasn't open yet when Jesus, however life came back to that dead body, but at some point he sat up and took that wrapping off his head, set it aside. Remember, it's neatly laid aside there. And at that moment, he crushed the head of the serpent because he beat death. The Father, you overcome the evil one. Children, you know the Father. You have everything you need. You don't need anything else. Go on. Grow in Him. You're strong. You have the strength of the Spirit within you because the Word of God abides within you and the Word of God will stand forever. That's what's within you. Tools to live a victorious life. And then number two, uh, love of the world or worldliness is the great challenge that all believers face. It just is. And our experience uh, is different. And like I said before at the beginning, sometimes for some of us, the greatest challenge to worldliness is less the attraction of this or that overt sin. It's my love of this or that particular hobby or thing that I've done so far to excess that I, I enjoy spending time at that more than I do gathering with the saints and worshiping the living God. And my focus gets blurred. 
and I start to love things and I stop enjoying as much the love of the Father. It's, it's rightly ordering my love. It's, it happens a lot, I think, like this. You remember Abraham and Lot. So their, tri- or their herds are expanding, right? And it, it's, Abraham goes to Lot. His nephew, you know, listen, man, uh, there's, this is not going to work. You know, we got so many herds and our shepherds are, are starting to butt heads. And we, we just got to gotta separate. There's plenty of land. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Remember, Abraham and Lot, they separate. Here's where it began for Lot. Lot looked towards Sodom in the well-watered plain. Well-watered plain, okay. I got all these sheep, camels, whatever his livestock was. It'd be great. I can go down there and uh, good grass for my, uh, for my animals and uh, water, and it'll be great. But he looked towards Sodom. And then Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. So think about him, how he's thinking. He's not probably at that point thinking anything. You know, if I'm going to go down there... Um, I think I'll pitch my tent over this way. There's maybe some nice trees or whatever, and we can pasture the sheep and all the animals. And then just a couple miles down the road is Sodom because we're going to need supplies and things like that. So we can go in and out of town and get what we need, and that'll work great. Then he moved into Sodom. In a picture, he's probably in and out of Sodom several times, gets to know people pretty soon. A lot, you, you know, he's got relationships and all that. You know, really... It sure would. I'm, I'm here every day anyway. So he moves into Sodom. And then all of Sodom was captured and Lot and his family was captured with it. Remember Abraham had to raise an army, went out and rescued his nephew. Interesting thing is Lot moved back into Sodom. And then the Lord God comes down and says, uh, I'm headed to Sodom to find out if the sin of the place is as bad as the cry of it. And the two angels come to Sodom, and where's Lot? Sitting in the gate with all the leaders of Sodom. And he greets the angels. We know the story. Takes him into his own house. And the next morning, they literally have to take him by the hand almost and drag him out of town. Flee to the mountains. We can't destroy this place till you're gone. The attraction of Sodom and the subtle ways that he slid into it, and then... And then when he's fleeing and he gets to, the, to, to where it, there is safety, the angels destroy Sodom and everything he worked for in his life was destroyed. His son-in-laws are dead. His wife is a pillar of salt. And he'll be immoral with his daughters soon. And his life, because of the love of the world, was totally corrupted. And yet, and this is wonderful, this is mercy, Second Peter, 2, 7, and 8. He, God, rescued righteous Lot. Calls him righteous. Greatly distressed. Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And he went into that and he lived among us and he grieved his soul continually because he got too close to it. And he got dirty himself. And yet, Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And isn't Lot a picture of that? That we have a merciful God that will, when he says mine, will never, ever let go. If you're his, you're his. But we can suffer loss 
because we love the world literally more than we love God sometimes. Rightly ordered love. Love, enjoy, celebrate the good things. Lord God, aren't we blessed? I mean, where we, where we live, I mean, aren't we blessed? We've got comfortable homes. You're sitting in comfortable pews in a comfortable church facility. You're not sitting on a bucket in the woods somewhere. You know, and, and you, you just, I mean, we're soft even because we've got it so good. And, and enjoy the good things the Lord has given. But love not the world. Don't let the flesh draw you so much into that that, that that you're enjoying that more than the love of the Heavenly Father. To the point where it displaces Him from being the priority in our life. Rightly ordered love. Let's love the Lord with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our mind.